exploring new directions in urban environmental history, a roundtable preview for the upcoming meeting of the American Society for Environmental History. The idea of cities and their connections to broader landscapes, that's one of the things that I think is most interesting in what's being done in urban environmental history these days. And I speak with professors Arne Keeling and John Sandloss about mining the Canadian North. I'm Sean Courage, and this is episode 13 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the network in Canadian history and environment. Next week, I'll be in Portland, Oregon, for the annual meeting of the American Society for Environmental History, where I'll be participating on a roundtable panel on new directions in urban environmental history. We had the opportunity this week to record a preview discussion for that roundtable panel with Matthew Klingel from Bowdoin College, Ellen Stroud from Bryn Mawr College, and Carl Apoon from New York University. We invite listeners to post comments to the show notes for this episode with any questions or contributions they want to add to the conversation in advance of the meeting next week. In this way, we hope to extend that conversation to those who will not be able to make it out to Portland. You can post your comments to the Nature's Past show notes at nice-canada.org slash nature's past. My name is Matthew Klingle, and I teach history and environmental studies at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. And what we're talking about today is a roundtable that will be at the 2010 American Society for Environmental History meeting in Portland, Oregon, titled Herbs and Horto, New Directions in Urban Environmental History. And we've assembled a group of young scholars who represent some of the new directions that urban environmental history has taken over the past decade or decade and a half. And the question I guess I would pose to the people we have assembled here today is, in your minds, based on your own specific fields, areas of geographic expertise, periods of time that you study, what have been some of the more interesting or exciting ways you think studies of cities and studies of the environment have commingled and reinformed one another. Ah, so that's to me. Uh, this is Carl Poon. Uh, I teach history and environmental studies at New York University, uh, and uh, I'm uh, always a bit of a stranger in these things because I work on early modern Europe, uh, and environmental history is a decidedly modern field in certain respects. Uh, and I'm also a stranger because I don't really think of myself necessarily as an urban historian per se, even though I work my work centers on uh, on a very urban place, which is the the city of Venice. And I guess what I would just say very briefly in answer to your to your question, Matt, is uh, that. I do think that environmental history has uh, has a lot to contribute to a discussion of urban history, certainly in my period, sort of the Renaissance and early modern period, because uh, Renaissance history has always been overwhelmingly urban history, and it's always been overwhelmingly about urban culture and urban elites. But one of the issues that I've tried to address in my own work has been that, that uh, that these urban elites, it's not simply that the, let's say, the, the, the countryside or the hinterland supports the city, but that uh, urban elites in early modern Europe thought a lot about the relationship between uh, the city and, and, and its hinterland and the ways in which 
uh, the, the economy of the city, and in the case of Venice, shipbuilding industries and other large consumers of timber affected uh, affected the environment in the city. If I've been thinking about models, I think it's trite to say it, I guess, at this point. But uh, when I was a graduate student, the book that one of the books that helped me think about how to frame my project was, of course, Nature's Metropolis, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of the classic work of, uh, that, that deals with the problem of uh, a city's relationship to a much larger, broader hinterland. And I guess I'd stop there for now. Well, I think this is, this is Ellen Stroud. I teach urban studies and environmental studies at Bryn Mawr College outside of Philadelphia. And what Carl was just raising, I think, there with the the idea of cities and their connections to broader landscapes, that's one of the things that I think is most interesting in what's being done in urban environmental history these days, is um, you know, even though to a certain extent that's how the field urban environmental history um, got a lot of its got a lot of its start um, was relationships between urban centers and hinterlands. A, a lot of the the more recent work that we're seeing is really looking at cities um, not as places embedded in their hinterlands necessarily, but as really part of processes that include larger landscapes, that, that places outside of the city and places in the city are part of the same ecologies, and that figuring out how it is that people are parts of those processes and move back and forth across the lines, um, that's where you know, it allows environmental historians to really be exploring, you know, issues of housing and food security and environmental justice and health and and the cities just really being uh, an incredibly strong locus for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. This is uh, Sean Karaj. I am a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of British Columbia. I teach Canadian and environmental history. Uh, I research urban environments uh, in Canada. And my research right now is looking at the relationship between uh, humans and non-human animals in uh, Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver uh, over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. And what I'm coming up against as I'm conducting this project, this longer-term project, is some of these larger conceptual frameworks in urban environmental history that we've inherited over time. Carl's already mentioned um, Bill Cronin. Uh, and Nature's Metropolis, which gives us this metropolitan approach to understanding the relationship between cities and their hinterlands. Um, and I'd, I would add to that from the Canadian context, uh, JMS Careless, uh, who introduced the metropolitan thesis into Canadian history as a framework for understanding the relationship between the major metropolises of Canada and the control over natural resources uh, in the northern uh, hinterlands of each of the provinces. Uh, here in Canada. So this is a framework that I'm, I'm trying to work with and trying to understand uh, the ways in which uh, the city changes over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries from a space in which domestic uh, animals and humans share space uh, to one in which domestic animals are increasingly extirpated from urban environments and what kind of impact this has on urban spaces. And I think it's right there. This is Matt again. I think right there, Sean, you mentioned something interesting, especially riffing a little bit off of Carl and Ellen's comments, that a lot of classic themes that were embodied in the first wave of environmental histories that would call themselves resolutely urban 
hinterland core relations, relations to the periphery, the problem of chronology, is it an early modern, is it a modern, is it a pre-modern phenomenon? I think those are all really important. But there's another thing as well which you brought in by bringing in Carolus and the references that people have made to Bill Cronin, which is also how much urban environmental histories are bound up with national traditions of historiography. Because I think one of the problems with environmental history south of the parallel in the United States has been that it's been a wonderful vital field now for well on, you know, approaching a generation and a half. But until fairly recently, it's been under the thrall of Frederick Jackson Turner and the idea of the frontier and open space. And even someone like Cronin, who was borrowing very heavily from people like Carolus and Innes and others in the Canadian tradition as well as European tradition, he was very much having to battle against that. And it still remains, I would say, a problem for the field, even as it's incredibly vital, is that for those looking in at environmental history, they tend to look at people doing cities as something that's a bit of an outlier. Even though we've had wonderful practitioners from Marty Melosi to Joel Tarr and to people who maybe not, might not see themselves as a historian like Ann Whiston Spurn, that have really you know, plowed the field, so to speak, use an agricultural metaphor there for the city. Mm-hmm. But we still, in our national tradition in the United States, it's that still when we think of the environment, we think of places out there despite a lot of work and the contrary. So I guess to throw it back to Carl and then to you and to uh, Ellen, to what degree have national historiographies of the field you work in make it easier or harder to talk about the environment? Carl, you said that as a Renaissance-era historian, it's in some ways easy because people talk about cities and talk about city-states. Yes, and I'd, I'd add to that, actually, that it's easy because one tends not to, even though there are obviously national traditions, historiographical traditions in early modern European history that are quite strong in France and Britain and so forth, it's much easier uh, as an early modernist to, and especially as an Italianist, because there was no such thing as Italy, so there isn't exactly a national history in that sense. So it's it's much easier to think about the connections between particular places or particular ecologies uh, in a non-national framework. And 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 I would actually add that the the so I did this when I was I was thinking about Venice, and I guess you would think about Venice as a kind of city-state historiographical tradition. But the project that I'm working on now has to do with uh, with cattle beef cattle markets, and it's. Uh, it's a project that connects the Hungarian grasslands with Venice and through Venice to Naples and southern Germany and, and even France. And so, I mean, one of the things that environmental history should be able to do is to is to get people to think, and this is an argument that I've made explicitly uh, both in the, in the forest project and I'm going to make it again. This is the, one of the big advantages of environmental history is that it gets us thinking outside of these national traditions I, and then the only other thing i would i i, I did want to comment on was was matt you saying that that the the american historiographical tradition is still in some ways in the thrall of of turner and and the frontier hypothesis and i actually find that kind of interesting because uh, i have an article coming out in environmental history this spring and i made a claim in that article not quite an offhand claim, but I, I simply characterized the vast majority of environmental history, especially American environmental history, environmental history in general, as being still framed in terms of encounters, kind of frontier encounters of various kinds. 
And someone uh, who I was presenting a piece of that paper recently, a couple of weeks ago here at New York University, and someone got extremely exercised about that remark and said, you can't say that. That's not so. And then here we are today, and, and you're essentially <laughs> confirming for me my, my, my prejudice, I guess, about, about the <laughs> <laughs> well, this Ellen, why'd you wait into that? <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a slightly different uh, tack on mm-hmm. it. Um, the this idea of sort of frontier encounters and and Matt, a little bit about what you were saying about the you know, environmental history, environmental studies, sort of people who are coming new to the field from the outside, um, right. really thinking of it as being about sort of nature out there, and that urban environmental history really, I mean, pedagogically. Um, especially teaching at a liberal arts college, um, like I do, and like you do, Matt. I wonder if your experience is similar. That you know, I find um, when students come to environmental history classes, sort of come new to the classes or come new to environmental studies, they're they're really expecting to learn about almost anything but the city. The city is just mm-hmm. not, you know, the city's not what they're looking at. They're, they're, it's not what they're thinking about. And they really are thinking about, you know, encounters in the wild, people going out into forests, people going out into nature that is elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And to get them really thinking about, to, to get them to look in, sort of inward as opposed to outward, to get them to look at their own lives, their own environments, um, their own, uh, their their own narratives and the way it is that they interact with you know the natural world or with environments every day whether it be in their dorms or whether it be on campus and to be able to really read a built environment as an environment and as part of an ecology um, doing that where they live and being able to do that in a city and to recognize um, the ecological systems in a city and that those systems have deep histories is is something that's really powerful and and gets students thinking about both the environment and history and their own roles in it in in both of those um, both of those arenas again in really strong and powerful ways. It's something that I found just to be a lot of fun to teach. Yeah, I have well, to ab- agree. Ab- yeah. Absolutely, I was going to say. Ab- ab- go ahead, Sean. But I was going to say, absolutely, in the liberal arts college, it's a great way to sort of pull the scales off of their eyes. Excuse me. <laughs> Yeah, I found I found in for students that there is a recognition that the actions that they take as consumers uh, in an urban urban setting have impacts beyond urban environments. But I agree with Ellen. There is a sense that, uh, especially in environmental history courses, that uh, cities aren't going to be a major uh, subject of of examination. Uh, and when we introduce urban environmental history into our environmental history courses, I think we do begin to open up students' eyes into seeing how natural and cultural landscapes are really these hybrid spaces and we can start to see uh, cities and urban spaces which we generally perceive as artificial and uh, solely human spaces as in fact biological spaces that are spaces in which humans and, and non-humans cohabit, um, which and is part of the reason, yeah. I would say the inverse as well, that it allows them, once they can start to see cities as embedded in natural processes, they can also more easily than see what they had previously thought of as purely natural spaces as having social and cultural components as well. And I think this is what Cronin built upon 
uh, careless with the Metropolitan thesis, the city was sort of framed as this lifeless machine that was drawing in resources from this vast hinterland, controlling mining, forestry, uh, and energy resources across vast territories, uh, but not being examined as an ecological space in and of itself. And I think that's something that Cronin added to Metropolitanism. Right. And I think the, to go off of your point, Ellens, and also uh, with what you said, Sean, I think that cities also, you know, seeing them as hybrid landscapes, I think is something that both urban historians have really emphasized as well as added to the growing um, sense in the field that that's often one fruitful way to study environmental history. And I think that particularly in teaching, cities are great because they also do something else that I think has been central to a lot of the discussions in the field as of late, which is this ongoing discussion about the problem of declensionist narratives. And whether or not you agree or disagree with their critiques about how declension should or shouldn't figure into the strategies we have for the narratives we construct, one of the things that cities really force you to confront, because if you take them as hybrid creations that are part human, part natural, part biological, part technological, uh, the sort of messy amalgam of things, is that you start cause and intent, these things begin to blur, and it's a lot harder to write a simple story of just basic declension. And that in itself is not just a narrative strategy, but it's a way, I think, more importantly, uh, both as a teacher in the classroom, but also as a scholar communicating to other scholars about how to take the question of nature seriously as a historical problem, both what we carry around in our minds as well as the physical world that envelops us and that we shape in turn. And I think to go back to your point, Carl, about what I was trying to make about Turner, is that I think that Ellen was getting what I think what I was going to get at, which was that I think for people looking in on environmental history, people that do cities, and also for those that call themselves environmentalists, until recently it's been a rather tough sell that, like, why are you writing about a place, like in my case, Seattle, which may be a beautiful city, but it's still a city nonetheless. It's not Mount Rainier. It's not Puget Sound. And one of the things that I think that it's afforded us to do as a field is that by looking at a city, suddenly questions that have long occupied environmental historians, like in your work, Sean, about animals. Animals in the city, it's like people don't think they go together, but then you suddenly open your eyes and you see, wow, there's a really exciting convergence of histories and a lot of complicated consequences that emerge from that. And it speaks, I think, to the ways in which environmental history may, and maybe I'm being overly naive here, is playing a small part in maybe reorienting those people beyond the academy to rethink what environmentalism means, uh, that it's a much more capacious definition and so that we can get out from under the thrall of someone like Turner while still recognizing the importance of those places that lie beyond city limits, but also realizing the places that lie beyond city limits really aren't beyond the limits of cities at all, because after all, what happens in cities influences their hinterlands when, and, and vice versa. Yeah, and, and bouncing off of that, Matt, the, 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 the taking and really recognizing environmental policy wherever that policy is enacted, that, that just as with all policies, environmental policy is about trade-offs and about choices, and that looking at looking at urban environmental policy and looking at non-urban environmental policy, but its, its impacts on the city, whether directly or just through diverting resources elsewhere, it really can highlight the fact that housing policy and transportation policy and um, employment policy are embedded in environmental policy. They're, they're all connected. They're not, um, not separate. Absolutely. Not. 
And, and I think along those lines, Alan, one thing that's been very interesting is that some of the directions that maybe urban environmental history hasn't taken is maybe some of those more explicitly political questions, whether they're political questions. And I'd argue, Carl, in your work on Venice, there's obviously some very political questions in the case of what's the relationship between Venice and its hinterland when it comes to forestry policy. But, you know, in a more contemporary example, like you said, public housing and transportation. Um, and one thing that's been thoughtful on these lines is that Marty Melosi, who was the recent president of the Urban History Association, in his presidential address, which was published in the January issue of the Journal of Urban History, he has a very thoughtful exploration about where urban environmental history has come and where it might be going into the future. And the reason why I mention that is that Marty's work has not only been as a historian, but he's also done work in policy history. And so he's one of the people in our uh, our field who has done work in a political realm with scholarly articles as well as writing the more traditional types of monographs and articles that we count as the coin of the realm. But uh, that's just one example that... Uh, it might be interesting to think about what new studies might be going. Yeah, uh, if I could just add to that. I mean, one of the things that I'm always interested in in my work is what is the relationship between uh, not just the sort of politics of trade-offs in particular choices, but what's the relationship actually between kind of political ideologies and and choices that, that people make about how to use or how to relate to, uh, to, the, to the ecosystems in which they're embedded, whether it's the cities or, or, or rural communities. Mm-hmm. And so one of the arguments that I made, as Matt was mentioning, is about, uh, is about how a particular form of Republican ideology in Venice influenced, heavily influenced the way they thought about resource allocation when it came to managing Timber, and I think the same things the same things are true uh, in more modern contexts. That the, the the ways in which we conceive of, or or the, the the ways in which we frame the choices or the trade offs that you were talking about, Alan, in some ways are are deeply are deeply informed by uh, a set of political assumptions that I think a lot of the actors aren't even necessarily always aware of. Which would then lead me to take a, a small issue with that that piece you wrote years ago in, in history and theory, and I would go back and, and make the claim that, in fact, actually, for the field of environmental history, I think environment is uh, a, a heuristic that should be, in a sense, elevated to the same level as, as other more canonical heuristics in, in historical analysis, uh, like race and gender and mm-hmm. class, obviously. Because it does tell us something. It gives us. It tells us something about politics. It tells us something about how communities organize themselves that we can't get at uh, necessarily through these other these other avenues. I think there's also an opportunity when studying cities from an environmental perspective to think about human beings as as biological actors in addition to political creatures and social creatures, gendered creatures, mm-hmm. racialized creatures. But that our actions when we're Constructing cities are, are actions of creating habitat, and yeah. as much as we create habitat for ourselves, we're creating spaces to facilitate a certain kind of symbiosis, one in which it's obviously asymmetrical toward human interests, but if we reframe the way we understand city building and the construction of urban spaces as habitat building for uh, creating symbiotic spaces, I think we can understand urban development, at least in a North American context, uh, differently. 
Oh, I think in all contexts. I mean, this is the other the other sort of liberating thing of working a in the early modern period and b in a sense on a place that's not a not a nation state is. I, I don't somehow face these problems with Venice because Venice is so patently a kind of artificial creation, but it's mm-hmm. also it's also an environment that was very carefully shaped precisely to create certain kinds of habitats for fish and and uh, and and birds and so forth uh, that that then obviously the the human inhabitants of the space would would consume. So so absolutely, I think this is a that's a kind of mode of analysis that works not just in North America, but it's definitely portable. <laughs> And I think that the thing you just brought up there, Carl, brings up another point that for the panel that we assembled here for the upcoming meeting in Portland, uh, in part because of the um, ability of people to join our panel who are otherwise committed, but I think also the opportunities that await is that the people on our panel are from North America and from Europe, and most of them, with the exception of you, work in the, resolutely in the modern period. And one thing that is going to be interesting just to see to what degree new scholars are going to be taking the insights from environmental history as a field and as a constellation of methodologies and applying it to cities beyond the beyond the north beyond the um, modern or early modern west and thinking about for example you know looking at a city like Rio de Janeiro or looking at Lagos or looking at Mumbai uh, or Jakarta, I mean, any number of cities around the planet are just, you know, rich with a lot of the themes that have come through in most of the recent scholarship. And one thing, for example, is at the root of my work, and I know many other people's work, is the question of inequality and questions of asymmetries of power. Mm -hmm. Well, as much as I may have wanted to write about Seattle as an environmental battlefield between have and have nots, and similar stories have been told about Los Angeles or New York, it's going to be interesting to see what future scholars will come up and telling a story, say, for example, about the creation of the townships and the larger metropolitan region of Cape Town or Joburg in South Africa, or, for example, Mexico City. And that's a really exciting thing, but I think it also calls into question the problem that there's reasons why you have rich scholarship in the developed world and gaps of scholarship in the less developed world because of those very asymmetries of power that make scholarship possible. And those asymmetries of power often reside most powerfully in the metropole. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, picking up on what Carl had been saying, I think there are lessons from early modern urban history that can definitely be applied to modern North American uh, urban environmental history. And um, there are there are certainly room and space in future studies for a conversation between to bridge geographies and, and time frames. It also seems important to be thinking of, you know, even, again, in the North American context, and I'm a U.S. environmentalist in myself, but, you know, to be thinking more and more about the, you know, the kinds of policies that are possible, the conservation policies, the wildland conservation policies that are possible in the United States, for example, because of the concentration of Americans in cities and the connections of, and the the connections of people in those cities to regions around the world and looking at world systems and um, positions of of power and unequal uh, you know, access to material goods around the world. That's just landscapes being connected, not just you know, the city and its center land, but cities, landscapes, and and just the international systems of trade that make 
our patterns of consumption possible. Which is another big thing that you mentioned uh, briefly earlier, Sean, is that questions of consumption are attracting the attention of environmental historians, and in a lot of ways, the the city, broadly defined, however you want to uh, bound it, is a, is a great place to look at these connections. And I think another thing that also cities bring in, which is important, and Ellen, this is, I think, something that uh, motivates the, the book that you're completing on the return of the forest to the Northeast, and I know that it's played a part in all of our works here, is the question of scale. Uh, geographers, obviously, because of the nature of geography as a discipline, have to deal with questions of space and scale, whereas environmental historians, we sometimes, you know, we're a little bit more uh, loosey-goosey with it. And thinking about a city and defining where a city begins and where it ends, these questions of scale and space become critically important so that seeing one way the boundaries of New York end at the five boroughs, but in your work, for example, Alan, the boundaries of New York can extend all the way to the Catskills, just as like the boundaries of Boston can extend to the woods of Maine. And in that sense, one of the other great things that I think environmental uh, urban environmental history can provide is a reminder to those of us in the field about where we need to draw those precise lines and the importance, I think, as we've seen for environmental history since its beginning, to be comfortable at working at the interstices between different fields and being willing to get ideas and theories and concepts, not only for other national traditions or other chronological periods, but also other fields, geography being one of many. Well, I want to thank everybody for uh, joining in on this roundtable discussion today. Uh, Thank you, Matthew. Uh, Thank you, Ellen. And thank you, Carl. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Listeners attending the ASCH meeting in Portland, Oregon next week can sit in on the live roundtable on New Directions in Urban Environmental History on Friday, March 12th from 10.30 to 12. And remember to post your comments or questions on the Nature's Past show notes at niche-canada.org slash nature's past. Last fall, a fantastic video went up on the Niche website, featuring images of abandoned mine landscapes in northern Canada. That video was shot by Professors Arne Keeling and John Sanlos as part of their work on the Abandoned Mines Project, run out of Memorial University of Newfoundland. Arne and John joined me to tell us more about their work. So I'm joined now by two professors from uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland, uh, Professor Arne Keeling from the Department of Geography. Hello. And Professor John Sanlos from the Department of History. Hello. And uh, I wanted to speak to the both of you about a new project that you have launched, uh, which visitors to the Niche website may have noticed. This is the Abandoned Mines Project. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about this project, how it began, and, and what it's all about. Well, the project really began uh, uh, several years ago. We've done a lot of preliminary research. And uh, and it's it sort of been worked up through a, a developmental grant into the state it is today. And what we're hoping to do is work with five case studies spread throughout the north from the Yukon over to the Labrador-Quebec border, uh, 
communities that have abandoned mines located close to them, the idea is, is, is that these abandoned mines are historical landscapes, yes, but they also have contemporary policy implications in terms of who's going to clean them up, uh, what kinds of ongoing impacts they're having in these communities. And so we're trying to connect the past development of these mines and some of the problems that emerged really from the earliest days of development to issues that still persist today for Native communities in particular living near these mines. Um, Arne, I was wondering maybe if you could give us a sense of what some of these sites look like. I, I imagine very few Canadians ever make it to any of these locations. They are, in fact, very compelling sites. Um, mining has the quality, uh, oftentimes, especially with modern mining, of being quite an extensive process. Uh, one might picture a, a mine as just a, a head frame and a hole in the ground, and oftentimes they may be but in, in many of the situations that we see, uh, we're seeing uh, large uh, areas of uh, surface disturbance, vegetation removal, et cetera, pits, uh, open pits in the ground that may or may not be filled with water, uh, large tailings and waste rock piles, and then the associated ancillary developments uh, of mining, which include power developments, town site developments, road development, um, uh, railways, etc. So we really see mining as part of a, a total package of environmental and, and indeed social change uh, in these areas. But when we've, uh, when John and I or us individually have gone up to these places and, and just explored them as part of our field work, uh, uh, we never cease to be impressed by um, what uh, dramatic uh, landscapes these can be. So the project really seems to be tying environmental history together with contemporary conditions in the north really vividly and, and I know uh, through what you've put up on the website there's really clear evidence of the legacies here as you're saying with railroad tracks and abandoned mining equipment available can you talk a little bit about some of the the fingerprints or the traces of these past uh, uh, activities well, um, there are a number of them. I think what's interesting is the way that it is also the question of how um, these traces get remembered and memorialized. There's a whole question of historical memory here. Um, so in Yellowknife, for example, uh, surrounding the giant mine, there, there a group of people have set up a, a kind of living museum of uh, mining equipment and, and, and so on. So um, there are actually ways that human beings are shaping the way that these traces, the way that they look, the way that they're arranged, and the way that they're presented to the public. And that's a whole other question that we're exa examining is, is the issue of memorialization. Um, but in terms of, of the, the environmental footprint of the mine, so to speak, mm -hmm. the impacts can be uh, – can be wide-ranging. It can ra uh, range from everything from water pollution uh, phenomena such as acid mine drainage, and I won't get into the chemistry of that, but uh, uh, a very serious problem. There can be heavy metals within water. There's a whole host of water problems, but there are also problems that really date back to the earliest phases of exploration, forest fragmentation due to the cutting of seismic lines and initial roads and so on, test drills and pits. One of the most amazing sites that we saw in the north was the just... Um, row upon row of these boxes of core samples that have been drilled probably in the case of Pine Point, probably back in the 1950s. Um, and and they just it just went on and on and on. And, and although the, the footprint of that particular uh, phenomenon would have been quite small, it was an amazing sight to see just a, a kind of collection of the range of impacts that had gone on in terms of drilling and exploration activity. Um, and also, I mean, uh, there the, the an issue that has come 
really quite to the fore in Newfoundland recently is uh, the Buckins mine, uh, where they found people are there's there's a problem with lead poisoning. This is a former lead zinc silver mine. Um, that closed down several decades ago. And uh, one of our research team members actually got called upon, who's also here at Memorial University, uh, Dr. Yolanda Wiersma. She got called upon to serve on the uh, on a, a kind of emergency research committee to test uh, whether there's lead poisoning in animals and whether that's bioaccumulating through the food chain. So the concern being that human beings might be consuming animals, particularly moose, where, where lead might be persistent within within the, the meat that they're consuming. And these are questions that we have sort of the unseen impacts. We talk about this, this spectacular landscape changes, but also there are unseen chemical impacts, uh, loading of heavy metals, bioaccumulation, and so on, that also have a wide impact uh, in terms of the, their ability to spread through different organisms. And we're interested in tracing those kinds of changes over time as well. Well, <clears throat> this raises a question about regulation. Um, Historically and in the contemporary setting, what's what's the regulatory status of some of these sites? Which level of government is responsible for the management of these abandoned mines? That's one of the huge issues, in fact, that I think drew us towards this research project. In the 2003, I believe it was, Auditor General's report, um, uh, there was the issue of ab- mine abandonment and reclamation was highlighted as a significant um financial legacy for the federal government where many of these abandoned mines uh, no longer had owners that were associated with them and yet had significant these significant environmental problems or else cleanup costs that were associated with them the bill at that time being put at uh, half a billion dollars mm-hmm. for the northwest territories and yukon territories alone and that was just associated with the sites that they knew about There is um, an ongoing effort known as the National Orphan and Abandoned Mines Initiative, which is attempting to develop a national inventory of abandoned mine sites and then to move towards developing a set of best practices and help various jurisdictions, provincial jurisdictions as well as federal ones, uh, develop mines. The number of abandoned mines, everything from small um, somewhat inconsequential mines all the way to these very, very large scale and very problematic mines is in the thousands, perhaps up to 10,000 abandoned mines in Canada. And again, like with so many uh, resource problems in this country, uh, covered by a patchwork of legislation, much of it of the fairly recent variety that doesn't necessarily deal with these historic impacts and the legacy issues that are associated with them. Do you see this kind of work having implications for future abandoned mines and i'm thinking about what is arguably the largest canadian mining project the tar sand developments in alberta is there an expectation here that this project may be able to make policy prescriptions for how mines uh, the legacies of mining should be managed well we're working with um community partners and we're very careful we don't want to be the uh we, we don't want to go in there and and sort of uh act as the the all-knowing experts and be telling our communities what to do in terms of their policy prescriptions. We're actually hoping to draw on the people's experience with these abandoned mines. Um, Sort of the 
the ultimate uh, one of our ultimate goals in the project is to bring representatives who've been working on these issues from each of the, the affected communities um, and through a workshop process try to develop a best set of practices in terms of working with local communities on restoration projects. We will probably not be able to offer extensive advice on the, the technical issues of containing toxins, mitigating um, uh, chemical impacts and so on. That's not our area of expertise. I think what we'd like to do is working with our community partners develop a set of, of best practices around how to integrate people's uh, cultural conceptions of landscape, uh, the, quite, the whole social dimension of restoration ecology and so on. We're very interested in that because ultimately restoring a mine site is a historical question. If you're restoring something to ostensibly mm-hmm. what it was before, um, you, you have to know what baselines to draw on and you also have to consider whether people want to preserve any, any aspects of the mining heritage in the area. And there will be a, a range of views on that depending on the community. So, so again, working with our communities, we hope to, to via the internet or via um, uh, reports and so on, uh, disseminate information on, on what people in these communities feel would be, would be the best approach to restoring these sites. So it sounds like this just, this project is tying into a larger challenge of working with local communities to do environmental history? Absolutely. And and certainly just to echo what John was saying, that's, that is, in fact, if there is a, a, a gap, a policy gap that we've been able to begin to see already, many jurisdictions are dealing with the question of, questions of, you know, how do we regulate the mining industry in order to ensure that these types of uh, situations don't arise again? or else trying to develop new uh, practices around the technical remediation question, but very few questions are being asked about the social dimensions of mine closure and mine abandonment um, that we've been able to see in terms of authorities dealing with these questions. Um, and on the other hand, uh, this is, uh, to answer your, your next question, mm-hmm. this has been uh, kind of an exciting a new beginning, I think, for um, both of us uh, to, to try and build community participation, collaboration, and interests into uh, this research project from the ground up. Uh, The research is funded through the uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council's special call on northern communities, um, which explicitly required and asked for um, community collaborative collaborative, uh, research uh, enterprises. And so, you know, we still have faced the issues and the challenges of not being residents in the communities, of bringing you know um, our own uh, backgrounds and expertise to the area, and needing to get to know people in the communities, understand their concerns, and proceed with them at the pace that they're able and willing to move, uh, in order to you know facilitate the research, engage in some of these consultative processes that John uh, just outlined, as well as thinking of ways in ter- of uh, sharing our research to to a lay audience, to a more popular audience. And so that's led us to do things like um, creating a, a, the website that you referred to earlier, mm-hmm. to putting a video up, showing ourselves, engaging in some fieldwork activities, and to think about other ways that we can share the kinds of materials that we find in archives or uh, older government reports, photographs, anything that we can with communities to to give them uh, to some extent, the power to shape their stories and to interpret them the way that they see fit. Why don't we talk about the website then? Um, if listeners point their browsers to niche-canada.org/mining, they'll find the abandoned mining project site. What what sort of resources and content will they find on that page? 
Well, there are a number of resources. We have uh, uh, listed some. We have a, a links to one, our latest publication that uh, that uh, Arne and I have uh, published with the journal Environment, Environmental Justice. We have links to some talks that uh, we've given at various conferences, such as ASEH, and also um, researchers not directly linked to the project who have been um, um, uh, who've who've given talks on mining uh, mining related topics or mining topics. Some of those talks were already up on the niche site, but we've collated in, into a into a uh, uh, sort of uh, one-stop shopping site for any any kind of mining information, and mm-hmm. then also we have a, a first in what we hope will be a series of video casts and slide casts about our case studies. Um, the first one deals with the Pine Point mine, and it's it uh, it will link you to a, a YouTube, uh, basically to YouTube where you can watch an eight and a half uh, minute video on the history of the Pine Point mine, and that was a very interesting project to try to put something out that would tell that story that would be a little bit more interesting perhaps than the the, the academic paper approach. We also have uh, photographs up. Uh, we have a map showing where our case studies are, um, and really, it's it's um, it, there. There's information about the project team. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, background information on each of the case studies as well. So it's we didn't want to put too too much uh, into the website and overwhelm people, but we're also hoping that it will grow a little bit over time and that it will have again more uh, more talks that uh, are given under the rubric of the project, uh, more papers or links to papers posted up and, and so on. So it's, it's uh, I, I think it's, uh, we're off to a good start in terms of disseminating information about our topic area and, and hopefully the project will grow. And I can honestly recommend to people that uh, if that niche is a great place to go in terms of uh, putting up a project, a linked project site um, because not only do you get a lot of help setting up the site, but I think um, people are always checking uh, the niche site for what's going on in the Canadian uh, uh, field of environmental history. So, so yeah. it's it's been a re- real success from the start. I'd, I'd encourage listeners to check out this, the page. It's very well laid out, and the video of the Pine Point Mine, uh, the Pine Point Mine video, is particularly interesting. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you made this video and what brought you up there uh, to put this one together. Well, I should probably let John, who was the real uh, impetus behind it, uh, talk about it a lot, but. Uh, um, I'll just say that you know what we wanted to do initially was do a lot of uh, documentation of our of our field work. You know, we um, certainly as a geographer, but also as, I think especially environmental historians know well that you know traveling to places, exploring them, getting a sense of place in a kind of qualitative sense is is a big part of our work. And we we were really interested in documenting that process and and thinking about the ways in which we could communicate that. Uh, process to other researchers, community members, etc. And so um, we were not only taking photographs, but then um, John uh, had the idea to begin taking some video with uh, one of the cameras that we had brought. Mm-hmm. And we were we began doing some uh, somewhat impromptu um, uh, talking head type shots in order to show some of the landscape, to talk about what we were looking for and looking at, um, to give that that people the sense of uh, uh, I guess what. That Simon Shama calls the archive of the feet. Um, so and then and then John did did a lot of the work in putting the video together and 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 mounting it up. So maybe I'll I'll let John speak to that. Well, um, yes, as Arne says, the the idea emerged kind of spontaneously. I realized that I had a video function built into the camera that I was taking up to take photos of archival documents and and. Uh, well, as anybody with small children will know, you learn how to edit video, uh, and you do uh, quite a bit of it. So I did have experience with editing video, 
um, if people are interested, I mean, there are, uh, I don't want to, you know, sort of start advertising for particular companies, but there are lots of software packages out there. They're, they're available ones that let you do fairly sophisticated uh, 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 things with your video and your, and your slides are available for as low as $50 now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's something you can purchase through research grant money. The software is not very hard to use. Um, it, it can give you certainly a professional enough product for YouTube. And I think the advantage of this is that um, two things. We talk about trying to get outside the walls in our classroom. I showed this mm-hmm. video to my students and they absolutely loved it. And, uh, and uh, it, was, it, it gave me an ability to take them essentially on my fieldwork trip to a certain extent um, and give them a sense of bring the research into the classroom, right? We talk about this classic research and teaching divide in the university and I think anything we can do to break that down is, is very, very valuable. And the other part about it is just, is just giving the, um, I, I guess, in the three, first three days that video was up, almost 600 people looked at it. And now if you compare that to how many people you may think are reading a, a paper in a journal or even perhaps your book sales in the first year, it's probably <laughs> a lot more um, than, than either of those. Now, you could argue that the paper or the book is a higher quality contact with people. And that might be true. It's, it's you're getting a lot more information out in, in those venues. But at the same time, I, I'm pretty happy with the fact that in three days, that many people learned a little bit about our project, learned something about the Pine Point Mine, and may be inspired to go further and, and, and do research on other inform- and, and find out other information on the topic, whether it be students or people who are interested in the environmental issues surrounding the mines or, or whatever. Um, I, I think it's not something that would replace academic publication but it's certainly complimentary and it's certainly worth the effort in my opinion i think listeners would benefit a great deal by watching this video there are some visuals and images on there that are incredible uh images of places in canada that not very many canadians get to see uh the website again is niche-canada.org slash mining i want to thank the two of you for joining us and telling us a little bit more about the project thank you Sean. sean Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Matthew Klingel, Ellen Stroud, Carl Lapoon, Arne Keeling, John Sandloss, and me, Sean Courage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate this podcast and write a short review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. If you have any ideas for new episodes, or you want to send me some feedback, you can contact me through my website, seancourage.wordpress.com. And you can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from Niche's website at niche-canada.org. Thanks for listening, and be sure to download our next episode.